But deep down, uh, we're, we have questions that we don't feel safe to ask because we don't want to be rejected. And I think about Jude, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I think about Jesus, he was merciful. Take John the Baptist, he uh, you know, baptized Jesus. He was mm-hmm. his cousin. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on the heels of John's doubts, Jesus said, uh, behold, you know, I tell you, no one has been born greater of a woman than John. In other words, Jesus can handle our doubts. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a, a difference that I'd want to make. There's skeptical doubters and there's sincere doubters. Yeah. Uh, there's antagonistic doubters and authentic doubters. Some people want to doubt to move beyond their faith. I wanted my doubts to take me deeper into it. Hey, and welcome back to the All Things All People podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Jenkins. And today, as you've already heard, we're dealing with Jesus dealing with our doubts with the one minute apologist, Bobby Conway. This interview is awesome because I love talking to all sorts of people. You know, we, we run a whole spectrum of Christians with various backgrounds. And it seems as if you know, we get to talk about and talk to a lot of apologists. My favorite kinds of apologists are the ones that deal with the whole person and they deal with the whole question, not just quick little quotes that are meant to diffuse doubts, um, but instead holistic, holistic answers to difficult holistic questions. And Bobby Conway, the one minute apologist, is a tremendous example of this because as you're going to hear, not only did he have doubts, but he came from a life before Christ that was full of habits and behaviors that were anything but Christ-like, but Jesus dealt with him in that. And even on into his faith, he had struggles with alcoholism and mental illness. And Jesus dealt with those too, just like Jesus dealt with his doubts. And now Bobby and his wife, Heather, and the whole team at One Minute Apologist is set up to address the whole person. And that's one thing I love about him. And I think you are going to love about him too. And by the end of this interview, I want to make sure that you all are subscribed to the One Minute Apologist on YouTube, to his Instagram, and everything else. It's already linked in the show notes for you. So go check them out. Make sure to also check out all things dot all people on Instagram and uh, go check out our website, all things, We have some really cool stuff coming up at the end of March. We have our first pop-up shop coming up in the first week of April, uh, where we're going to have some pretty awesome merch that, that we're going to be working on. Our creative director, Josh is working on that right now. And so be on the lookout for that. We also have some amazing guests coming up. And one thing I'm excited about is that this week, if you're listening to this episode, when it drops, is that this week we are actually giving you a bonus episode dropping Wednesday morning with Dr. Christina Crenshaw. And I know that not many of you know who she is, but the story of her last month or so dealing with um, just some insane drama uh, due to, uh, political strife in her workplace. And, and you're going to, you're going to hear a lot more from her on Wednesday morning when you go listen to that. Um, but we're giving you a bonus episode this week. Uh, we got Bobby Conway today. And in the next few weeks, uh, the guests are just really going to blow you away. So I'm excited 
and and I am so blessed to be able to sit here and do what I do with All Things All People. And if you don't know, All Things All People exists to develop generations of Christian thinkers to understand and reach the world around them with the transformative message of the gospel. Simply put, we want to help teach Christians how to think like a Christian. And so that's what we're doing today. And nobody else could do it better this week than Bobby Conway, the one minute apologist. And so that's our Christian thinker for this week. Let's do it. My next guest is an apologist, author, and speaker who founded and runs The One Minute Apologist, a ministry devoted to creating engaging media, giving Christians and non-Christians answers to some of life's most difficult questions. He is the author of phenomenal books like Hell, Rob Bell, and What Happens When We Die, When People Die, The Fifth Gospel, Doubting Towards Faith, and Does God Exist, and 50 other, 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. He admirably uses the gifts and passion God has given him to be a voice for people with questions. So it's for these reasons and so many more that it's my honor to have on the show today, the one minute apologist, Bobby Conway. Bobby, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to be with you, my friend. Um, We were talking pre-show just briefly um, about uh, some of the mutual contacts that you and I have, and and I'm privileged to have those contacts through this show. Um, But uh, I've been aware of your ministry for, for quite a while. You do a phenomenal job, especially on social media. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, I mean, you really literally stick to that one minute limit. I've never seen mm-hmm. somebody do such a good job in such a short amount of time. Thank um, you. But, you know, it, uh, everything I read about you, everything I saw, uh, one thing that jumped out to me is you repeatedly tell people that you're a lover of books. So before we get into the nitty gritty, I just was going to say, what are you reading? What's what's jumping off the page at you right now? <laughs> you know, I'm reading a book right now by Gene Edward Veith, uh, and it's a good book. It's uh, called Post-Christian, and so uh, it's been really helpful just getting, you know, some up-to-date statistics on where we are as a culture, and, uh, you know, uh, in the Bible, I'm in the book of Exodus mm-hmm. and in the book of Acts and the New Testament, and uh, that's kind of the places I've been. I've uh, loved in the past when I have the time to be able to get through as many books as I can. Uh, lately, life's been busy, so I've been having yeah. to just draw on a pre-prepared well, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. So we'll get into your your personal story, your testimony of how you met Jesus is so phenomenally interesting and encouraging. But uh, you have such a a varied background. Uh, you know, Bible school in Arkansas, Dallas Theological. Now you're you're really involved at Calvary Chapel Bible College. You did your uh, doctoral work in in England. Um, what would you say, like, out of all of that various experience? Because I'm sort of that way too. You know, I, I I'm a pastor at a Baptist church, but I'm I'm very closely tied to Calvary Chapel and so many other groups. Um, and so I know what it's like to have like a, a large segment of influences. What what were some of your biggest theological influences as you were reading in seminary and college? You know, that's a good question. Um, Each uh, degree program served its purpose for me. So when I was at Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, I had the privilege of studying under uh, the the late, great Howard Hendricks. And Mm -hmm. so learning Bible study methods from him was a true honor and being able to be, uh, you know, each year he takes 12 guys and disciples them. And I had the privilege of doing that. 
And, uh, you know, there's a long legacy there where he's poured into Tony Evans and Andy Stanley yeah. and Chuck Swindoll and Tommy Nelson and a whole host of others. So it was so exciting just to be able to be part of what he does and to be able to have him pour into me was great. Uh, I loved the preaching courses there. I think Dallas Seminary produces wonderful preachers. Uh, I loved the Bible X classes. I love the opportunity to learn languages, uh, getting into the Greek and the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went off to do my first doctorate, I studied under Norman Geisler yeah. and did apologetics. And uh, that was really helpful because I would read books written by Geisler and I was very familiar with his work, but it was a real treat uh, to be able to go to the school that he started. What led me to consider doing a degree at the University of Birmingham in England, I just wrapped up my PhD there in philosophy of religion on the moral argument. Uh, I was drawn to the work of William Lane Craig. He studied there in the John Hicks Center for Philosophy of Religion. And so uh, through his encouragement, uh, that was something that caused me to go that direction. And I also felt like I had been evangelically bred. So to have the opportunity to kind of go to a prestigious university and to go through something in the UK was a real treat. Being able to fly back there on different yeah. occasions and meet with my supervisors. Uh, so it was a lot of fun and each had its own hardships. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that's phenomenal. And, and I'm, I'm actually not too far from Southern Evangelical here in Western North Carolina and uh, had the opportunity to shake Dr. Geisler's hand shortly before he passed away. And so the, the legacy there at Southern Evangelical is phenomenal. But when I hear you list out those influences and the experience, I laugh sort of because I think, man, that's a long way from the community college baseball player living in Southern California and living a, a party lifestyle. I've heard you describe on, on so many occasions. And um, as I said, I'm so encouraged by your testimony because you met Christ or really heard the gospel most clearly for the first time listening to a guy named Greg Laurie. And, mm. um, and so I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share uh, a little bit about what was it going from a really, um, you know, I mean, I think it's the way a lot of young guys live when they're playing baseball and don't really know what's going on in their life. And then you, you hear the gospel communicated by a guy like Greg Laurie and, uh, and what was it about Jesus? What was it about the gospel that just jumped, jumped out at you and now has led to these amazing, you know, experiences and opportunities that you have today? Well, I kept using uh, alcohol and drugs to try to drown my guilt. The problem is, is you get sober and uh, <laughs> then you're dealing with your guilt again. Mm -hmm. And so I was collecting a large uh, sum of guilt and I wanted to get rid of it. I wanted to eradicate it. I didn't grow up in the church. In fact, I'd never heard the gospel till I was 19. Uh, my college teammate took me to hear Greg Laurie and he was presenting Christ to me. And I really connected because Greg talked about how Jesus uh, came to deal with our guilt. And uh, he talked about Christ in a way that resonated with me. It wasn't churchy. Uh, he had a laid back way about him. Uh, I connected with him. He would even share stories about hitting the bong or smoking yeah. a joint. And, you know, I mean, I, he was speaking my language at the mm -hmm. time. And uh, I ended up really resonating and believed that Jesus could not only deal with my guilt, but give me a sense of purpose in life. And so when I placed my faith in the Lord, 
Um, that set me on a journey. I was conflicted though, Jeremy, because I spent all my life living according to my feelings. I was a slave to my emotions. And so just because I believed in Jesus, it didn't automatically break years of bad habits. I still had to figure out a way to undo the slavish lifestyle to my emotions and my feelings. And so it took quite a bit of time. So I spent the first year and a half relapsing over and over and over again, setting dates of when I would quit drinking only to blow it again. And then finally, uh, October 9th, 1994, I went to an AA meeting and uh, would do over 400 uh, sobriety meetings in my first year. I got plugged in at Saddleback Church, connected to Celebrate Recovery. And through that combination of AA and Celebrate Recovery, I was able to experience a freedom uh, that so released me from so much guilt that now all I wanted to do was tell people about the Savior who redeemed me, that forgave me, that gave me a sense of purpose. And it wasn't long before I sensed a call on my life to full-time ministry. And then I would go off, get married to my wife, Heather, and we'd go to Bible college. And then I'd go off to seminary, plant yeah. churches, and then the rest was history. Yeah. And it's and it's still history being written and and just for anybody listening who might be in the midst of struggles like that. I mean, that's so encouraging. Like we have a recovery program at the church that I pastor that's somewhat similar to celebrate recovery. And I think about you being in a church basement, like the one that, you know, our group meets in and, and how, you know, somebody who's listening might be in the midst of a struggle that they think they can't be broken from, but here we are talking to, you know, you and and you've had these, these tremendous opportunities, but they came from Jesus setting you free um, from that, but you mentioned how it led you to Bible college and then seminary. And then now, you know, the things that you're doing when I was, uh, reading up on you and getting to know you better through, uh, research and whatnot. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the way that you approach things and it, and it's, it shows itself in your ministry with one minute apologist, is you said, you began to learn when you went to Dallas that, uh, you know, Whereas a lot of Christians think there's only one interpretation for many of the biggest questions in life. You started figuring out through guys like Howard Hendricks and, and many others. Oh, no, actually, there's three and four possible answers to this question. <laughs> and so right. as a guy who, you know, makes a, a great deal of content and does a lot of his ministry based around trying to help people understand or, or sometimes answer questions. Um, how did that impact you figuring out, oh, Christianity is much more diverse and vast than just a simple list of Q&A? You know, I think it caused me to think about discipleship in a different way. So what happened to me is I ended up in a very uh, black and white, narrow-minded uh, you know, tight box of Christianity in Bible college. Uh, you know, so much so I was out sharing the gospel and personal evangelism. And I was told, you know, uh, the, that I needed to memorize verses in the King James version yeah. uh, in order to pass my class. And so we had 50 verses we had to memorize for our evangelism class. And here I was, this guy from Southern California, living in a dry county in Arkansas. And uh, I was actually out fleshing out the gospel through daily evangelism. And I'm listening to my professor tell me, go out and do this. And I thought, my goodness, I don't even understand uh, this language. It doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. And so mm -hmm. you juxtapose Greg Laurie with my Bible college, yeah. and you've got this clash of communication. Mm -hmm. um, and 
what ended up happening for me as well as I, as I went to Dallas Seminary, I started learning about the different types of views. I thought that Christians would be better served in their discipleship uh, by l- being made aware of those on the front end. Because if you get put in a box that's so small as a new believer, say you get saved on a Wednesday at a church, mm-hmm. and then Sunday you become a member, and you sign the, the doctrinal statement of the church, but you've only been saved four days. Now you've just signed a doctrinal statement that says you believe in inerrancy, you believe in the mm-hmm. Trinity, you believe in a pre-trib, you believe in young earth creation, and however long that list gets. Well, that's fine for the new believer because they're impressionable, uh, they're naive, they don't even know what questions to ask. Yeah. But if they're uh, academic uh, in the making or they're analytical, if they're thoughtful, what will happen is down the road, they'll get introduced to other views. And because they prematurely committed to views, not being aware of the alternative views, it can set them up for a future crisis of faith. And so one of the things that happened to me is I ended up going through such a crisis of faith that I thought I was going to be an apostate. Here I had a national platform as an apologist. I was leading a large church and uh, I didn't like my doubts. I hated my doubts. I didn't celebrate my doubts. I loathed them. I just didn't know what to do with them. My brain was collecting more questions than I could process uh, the answers to. So this snowball of questions was growing. For every book that I would read to try to hammer out the question I was struggling with, I would collect another dozen questions. So I had to renegotiate my faith stance, and my faith had to be something bigger than a lifelong Q&A session with Mm -hmm. God. I had to have faith like a child, go back to the beginning of placing my faith and trust in Christ, but I had to rethink what discipleship looks like. And so I told my kids, I said, look, uh, I want you to love God love people and celebrate the gospel. That's called great commandment, great commission living. I said, I don't want you to commit to your theological positions prematurely. I want you to uh, understand that you can enjoy learning. If you commit to your positions prematurely, you'll panic later when some other position comes along and threatens your view that you committed to. So I said, it's really important that you realize that when it comes to creation, there's several different views on that. When it comes to the return of Christ, there's lots of different views on that. There's lots of different denominations. Don't panic. Don't freak out. That's just part of of the story. Mm -hmm. And I let them know things like, you know, the first book of the new Testament wasn't even written until about AD 49. That means the church we look at in Acts two, that we so love and adore, uh, they didn't even have the first book of the new Testament. And the church was flourishing for a decade and a half without the first book of the new Testament on loving God, loving people, celebrating the gospel, great commandment, great commission living. Yeah. I've heard you put it that you want to give new Christians a bigger box to think in. And I think um, that's so that's such a great picture to paint for the rest of the church, because oftentimes, like you said, we we expect new Christians to just say, hey, you subscribe to what I believe and what our pastor believes. Right. And and I've seen it. I've seen it exemplified in your ministry. But what I I find so intriguing about you and one minute apologist is that you give credence to doubt. You know, you don't say, hey, don't doubt. In fact, you know, for me, that resonates with me because I've spent so much time in my, my ministry and my life with Christ really identifying with Thomas. When I read in the New Testament, I say, mm-hmm. no, that would be me, man. Like, <laughs> that would be me raising my hand and say, hey, where, how do we get there? You know, and, mm-hmm. and, and so I, I sort of see that same spirit in you, but you give focus to the issue of doubt. You wrote a book on it and the role it plays in faith. And, 
in so much of apologetics nowadays, especially apologetics on social media, because the nature of Instagram is it has to be 59 seconds. Um, the nature of the attention span is that you really have like 25 seconds. Um, but you somehow do apologetics in a way that isn't just simply extinguishing doubt. It's not just saying, hey, put aside your doubt and just blindly trust this. So what what role do you think does doubt play in apologetics when we're trying mm. to give a valid answer to either a Christian who's doubting or a non-Christian whose life is essentially you know, all about doubt. You know, I think for me, apologetics, uh, I got into it because uh, I was doing evangelism and I kind of fell into it as I realized I was being asked questions where I was getting stumped a lot. And so <laughs> apologetics became a tool for me to be more equipped as an evangelist. So I didn't get into apologetics because I had an academic interest in it or because I wanted to beat people up with Bible knowledge. I truly got into it because uh, I see apologetics as the way that I love the lost world with my mind. I take the time to understand their questions. So uh, then apologetics began to help me with my own doubts. So apologetics can help us with our evangelism endeavors, but then it can help us with our own doubts. And it can also help us to be more confident. So what ended up happening for me is I started thinking about this idea of doubt and realized that the subject was a bit taboo. Mm -hmm. You show up in small groups and you don't hear people say, you know, when they show up to talk about John seven, for example, say, you know, I really struggled wrapping my hands around the passage and I, it posed a lot of doubts for me. Uh, you're not supposed to say that. So we yeah. show up and we act all confident, but deep down uh, we're, we have questions that we don't feel safe to ask because we don't want to be rejected. And I think about Jude, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. And I think about Jesus. He was merciful. Take John the Baptist. He, uh, you know, baptized Jesus. He was mm -hmm. his cousin. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And on the heels of John's doubts, Jesus said, uh, behold, you know, I tell you, no one has been born greater of a woman than John. In other words, Jesus can handle our doubts. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a, a difference that I'd want to make. There's skeptical doubters and there's sincere doubters. Yeah. Uh, there's antagonistic doubters and authentic doubters. Some people want to doubt to move beyond their faith. I wanted my doubts to take me deeper into it. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't want to become like an emergent church or progressive Christian guy. I, I wanted to hold on to it. But some people, they want to be as conservative as they can be about their conservatism, and they inevitably alienate some. Where I want to be as liberals I can be about the faith we're trying to conserve without slipping in the heresy. Because when you're as conservative as you can be about your conservatism, you inevitably alienate some. But when you're as liberal as you can be about the faith you're trying to conserve without slipping in the heresy, you have more of a welcoming spirit. And so I think that we should realize that doubt's not a human or Christian problem. It's a human problem. Mm -hmm. In the absentee of certainty, there'll always be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview best closes the doubt gap? And doubt has been something that has been around ever since the beginning of time. Adam and Eve struggled with it in the garden. Has God said the evil ones mm -hmm. uh, tempted them? Uh, you know, we think about Abraham having doubt and, you know, let's get Hagar and try to bring this promise on. Think about, uh, you know, Thomas that we talked about. Um, it, it, we see this this theme of doubt, it's replete throughout the scriptures with Habakkuk or the psalmist. And so I think that that cry of our heart, and we should realize that if Adam and Eve could got doubt in the Garden of Eden, 
how much more are we susceptible to doubting in paradise lost? If we're in a situation where John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, could struggle with doubt, how much more 2,000 years removed from that time in a world with over 40,000 denominations in a melting pot culture of beliefs, uh, it shouldn't surprise us that we have questions. Yeah. And you're, that, that uh, answer tells me so much about you as you also, you know, for a, a quite a while at the beginning of your ministry life, you were a church planner and a pastor. And I hear so much pastoring in that because, you know, a lot of guys who are apologists and identify strictly as apologists, which I know you don't really, um, there's so much more to you, but you know, a lot of guys who are apologists never were pastors. And as a pastor, I appreciate that answer so much because I know it's not as simple as, you know, a one minute video. I know it's not yeah. as simple and you know that too. And so, you know, when you were church planning in North Carolina and pastoring, and even now I know shepherding and, and discipling young men who, who are probably going to go, go and be pastors. What would you say to the pastor, whether they're interested in apologetics or not about how we should be handling, um, mm the certainty and uncertainty of the people in our congregations and our small groups and in our youth groups. I think it's really important that pastors recognize the role apologetics played in the early church and the role it needs to play today and the role it's played throughout church history. Uh, I mean, virtually every book of the new Testament addresses apologetic issues. Uh, and so to say that apologetics isn't important is just mm -hmm. to reveal how little evangelism we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to make sure uh, that we're aware of the issues. Now the apologetic questions uh, might be framed differently. Mm -hmm. uh, we're living in a time where we're having to come up with apologetic answers as it relates to critical race theory, for example, yeah. um, or uh, black lives matter movement or, uh, you know, the LGBTQ, uh, it, we're constantly posed with questions and we need to give a, a good, thoughtful Christian response. And our job's not to make the gospel more palatable for the culture, mm -hmm. but our job is to try to make it clear. Mm -hmm. And we are to be humble and try to present something that uh, people can digest. And so I think what ends up happening is, is we placate to the culture. I do think that pastors uh, should be intellectually aware of the issues of our time. So take, for example, uh, we talk a lot about moral relativism uh, being ubiquitous in our culture. And I do think that there is some moral relativism that is no doubt there. But I think that if we're attuned to culture, what we'll see is there's a new moral absolutism mm -hmm. that is emerging in our culture. And so much so, if you do not buy into the moral absolutes of critical race theory, wear to masks, uh, in you know, uh, ascribe to you know different gender pronouns or mm -hmm. embrace the LGBTQ movement. Then guess what? You get canceled. And mm -hmm. ironically enough, people accuse the church of being this narrow-minded group uh, that is just fundamental that erases people, but. Here is Christianity, we can say, no, well, we don't cancel people off. The only thing that Christianity cancels is sin. And that's what Jesus dealt with on the cross. Yeah. And I think, like you're saying, for a pastor, youth pastor, whoever it might be that's listening and whatever role they might be in, the role that apologetics is so sometimes so much less about giving an answer in, but it's also being showing that Christianity is open to questions, whereas so many other thought systems in the world today and historically 
we're so close-minded. Um, and like you said, a moral relativism that's now bled into moral absolutism that says, nope, if you don't agree with us, you can't be part of the group. But instead, an apologetic, like what I see from you and your ministry and so many other fantastic apologetic ministries all around the world is, no, you're welcome here. Your questions are welcome here. And like I said, I think I think you so well exemplify that as a as somebody who's spent so much time pastoring. And, you know, you engage people very well. Um, as well as engaging questions. And, and I've seen so much recently, I've been so encouraged by the work that you and your wife have been doing a lot on social media about mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's, that's a topic that the church has turned a blind eye towards somewhat naively, like, and even apologetics, you know, I think that when we talk about the problem of suffering in the Western world today, one of the largest problems of suffering that we have is why is there so much anxiety? Why is there so much depression? Why is there so much uh, paranoia in our lives? And so um, for the listeners, whether they, you know, feel intimately experienced with that topic or not, I know it might be weird for somebody to say, wait, I thought this interview was a about apologetics, but I've seen that passion from you and your wife. So can you kind of explain like, so a life of ministry of pastoring, and then in turn going out West and really launching this apologetics ministry, how did it get to be that you and Heather were so passionate about helping Christians understand mental health? You know, Jeremy, uh, ever since I can remember, I struggled with anxiety. Mm. Um, I didn't know how to put language to this struggle, Uh, My hands would be very sweaty as a kid in class. Mm -hmm. I would be very anxious thinking about uh, what could happen. And um, that really is one of the major reasons uh, because of my mental health issues that I turned to alcohol and drugs to assuage my inner angst. Mm -hmm. Um, What ended up happening is I shared with you how I got clean and sober Mm -hmm. and that carried me for a long time. Um, But uh, it, it's not like I became a Christian and I had this, uh, you know, rosy Christian life. Uh, my wife and I have experienced lots of intense fellowship. We spoke for family life today for almost 10 years, traveling around the country, coaching married couples. And uh, we have had lots of arguments. Uh, we've had lots of fights. We have felt so far from each other uh, at times. Um, we, we know what it's like to uh, have this anxiety. And, and, and then when I turned into my 40s, I'm 47 now, uh, I started sinking into horrific depression. I ended up on antidepressants. Uh, a lot of it was uh, instigated by uh, the season of doubt that I was going through, which by God's grace, I've been out for about four years now, I think, maybe five. Uh, and uh, it's not that I don't have questions, but I don't panic over them anymore. And um, I've thought about the other worldviews out there, and I just feel uh, very blessed to be a Christian. Um, we we raised kids that struggle with anxiety. Our son ended up in a horrific season of depression, and that just uh, caused us to just really cling to God and His grace to, to spare him. And so we have experienced it in our marriage. I've experienced it individually. We've experienced it as parents. And so what happened is, is when COVID kicked in, uh, mental health month is in May. My wife and I really started thinking about our story. And not to mention, um, I talked about my sobriety, but um, over two years ago, about two and a half years ago, I had a relapse. I was going through some depression and um, I wondered to myself, could I drink a glass of wine. I mean, I got clean when I was 21. 
Um, a lot of the Christian leaders that I serve with, they drink wine in moderation. Maybe I was just young and dumb. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I thought maybe I could do that to help me with my anxiety. It'd sure be nice if I could just drink normally like others. I wasn't wanting to abuse it like I did when I was a kid, but it got in my head instantly. And within six months, I was back in AA. Um, and then I did have a, a, a bad relapse one night. I ended up sharing that with the church. The church was very gracious. They gave a standing ovation and I was humbled by that. And I, I, I knew that like everything else I went through with my doubts, my struggle with my kids, my struggle in my marriage, I wanted to just come from an authentic place and say life is really hard. And so my wife and I, uh, we jumped on YouTube and we just started doing mental health videos mm -hmm. and we started trying to build an awareness. And I really see this as one of the apologetic issues of our day. What is apologetics? It comes from the Greek word apologia. It means to give a defense. Well, a lot of people in the church don't think there's a place for mental health issues. They think everything's a moral issue. And so what I'm trying to do is give an apologetic to give a defense for why we need good mental health uh, ministries in the local church. And when this whole COVID pandemic's over with, um, this is going to be a crisis that has quadrupled. Yeah. And the church needs to do more than just tell these people who are suffering that it's a moral problem. They need to be ready to let them open up and dialogue because some people don't get the dopamine or the serotonin or they got certain genetic issues that cause them to be racked with inner angst. Yeah. When I saw you and your, your, your bride beginning that, I was so encouraged because, um, just like you. And it, sometimes I look back at a season of my life where I was really struggling with anxiety and felt crippled by it. And it was due in large part to my ministry. And, and I remember reading that you've had a similar experience to where it was the expectations and the weight mm. of pastoring and ministry that at times brought that about. And so when I saw you and, and your wife doing that, I thought, man, this might be one of the first times I've seen you know, a, a well-known Christian leader speaking out in such a transparent and vulnerable way. And so I think so many people are going to be blessed and, and touched by that because uh, you're more aware than of it than I am. But as a pastor, I can, I could, I can't even count for you the number of people that I know that right now, whether because of COVID and the implications of it or pre-existing are just, they feel completely entrapped by their anxiety mm -hmm. and by their depression. And so, um, you know, one, one thing that I hear a lot when it comes to the Christian response to mental health and, and I'm sure I've been guilty of it at times too, is to simplify it to the point where we might say, Hey, just pray. Hey, just, mm -hmm. um, confess sin. Hey, and, and there's certainly a place for, um, of course, prayer and in the intercession of others as well. And there's certainly a place for the confession of sin so that there might be healing among us. But what would you say in your estimation is the things that the local church needs to begin doing better to help those, those people, those Christians and non-Christians who are struggling right now with, with mental health um, privately and they're not, they, they don't feel like they can go to the church for help. I think some of the things that, that we can do is uh, just recognize that it's there mm -hmm. um, and then start celebrating stories in our church. So, for example, uh, we're starting another church. We just moved from California back to North Carolina. We're starting Image Church. And uh, one of the focuses of the church, we want to be, uh, uh, you know, ethnically diverse, but we also want to focus on mental health ministries along with apologetics and worldview for the emerging generation. So for 
example, what we did is we had our son uh, this past weekend. He gave a video testimony and he talked about going through depression. And so we then told the people in the flock, hey, maybe some of you have anxiety, depression, other things, and you'd be willing for us to capture your story. So we want to kind of normalize uh, this and let people know that uh, it, you're, you're welcome in this church. In fact, we're here for you. My wife and I put together a mental health crash course that people can yeah. get at our One Minute Apologist dot com website uh, and it's got small group discussion questions and we put that together so that people could talk about this and we can get rid of the stigma i think that uh while some people with mental health issues it, there is a moral issue mm -hmm. connected to it it's not just the answer yeah. so i think being aware of uh, some of the neuroscience and some of the scientific discoveries i mean studies show that we are mutating to death that our kids have a hundred more mutations than we have mm -hmm. so uh, that means for each uh, generation that comes along it's getting progressively harder and much more difficult. So I'm so thankful for the emergence of modern day science and some of the things that they're helping us to know about neuroplasticity. So for example, uh, when I was a kid, uh, you know, they would show an egg cracked on a pan and say, this is your, your yeah. brain on drugs. And I yeah. thought, man, I'm hosed all the LSD that I took <laughs> uh, all the acid trips. Well, what we're learning today is you can actually do uh, some good cognitive therapy that can help uh, reroute your brain uh, and uh, help strengthen your prefrontal cortex. And all of this language, it might seem foreign to some people, but once we start getting into it, we realize that we're offering another way for people to be whole. And that's what we want. Mm -hmm. And some people are, you know, very much against medications in the church. And I'd say, that's silly. I mean, uh, the brain is an organ. And uh, we don't have any problem with uh, us using medications for other organs like the right. heart, but we have a problem with us using medication for the brain. Well, if the brain uh, could get serviced well by offering some dopamine uptake that can help, uh, you know, with the happy hormones, well, mm -hmm. then that can be a good thing. I think medication is a last resort. I was on it. I've been off of it. Um, and I, I, I don't think you just jump on it right away, mm -hmm. but I don't think that people need to be condemned. So I guess the types of things I would say, Jeremy, is um, building an awareness, uh, having uh, testimonies and stories uh, be shared, um, giving people a language in the church for what's going on, recognizing, you know, what, what do staffs do? They get together and people are coming Sunday to church. These people have a sin problem and we have a savior. So we need to tell these sinners that they need a savior. Well, that's part of the story, but the people that are coming, uh, that's just one of the problems. I mean, we are uh, people who have issues that are comprised of our genetics, of unprocessed traumas, of pains that we've experienced, of our addictions, of moral issues, of, uh, of different mental health issues. And so when we see people more holistically, I think that's going to resonate with people's soul a lot better than the myopic view that the church often takes. Yeah. And part of the vision and really the, the, the vision that all things, all people cast to people is we want to teach people to think like Christians. And, and part of that right now is engaging with a culture that really struggles to think, you know, really struggles with, how, okay, so how do I think, right? My, my head just feels so busy all the time. I'm so paranoid. I'm so anxious. And so that's why I, that's one of, like I said, one of the many reasons why I value you 
and uh, your ministry personally with you and your, your wife, but then also with one minute apologists. I think that for those listening who maybe you just didn't know about Bobby beforehand, please um, go check out his, his social media pages. Um, the one minute apologist podcast, the radio show that you're actually about to go do right now. Um, and so many other things, the books, because I think uh, you and what you guys are doing is an apologetic for the whole person and especially mm. the mind, not just the, the brain. And so I'm mm. so appreciative of you and your, your wife and your ministry thank you, and, it, and especially the time yeah, that you've shared with me today. So thank you so much, Bobby. Hey, you bet, buddy. Thank you for taking time to uh, have me on the program and to help get uh, some of the things that we're passionate out there. It means a lot. Well, thank you, sir.